Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Okunbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Venezuela has been in the thick of an economic crisis for years, and its poverty-stricken workers are looking for a glimmer of hope in illegal gold mining. Now, other countries in the region are being tempted by the profits of dirty gold. And in the rivalry between the two Koreas, one of them has a potent weapon, and I don't mean the nuclear kind. We take a closer look at the continued success of the North's women's football team. First up, though. A year ago, things weren't looking great for Meta, the social media behemoth that includes Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. Well, shares of Meta are cratering after missing earnings estimates and seeing a decline in revenue for the third quarter. The media giant reporting its Reality Labs division lost over $9 billion so far. Weak third quarter earnings sent the share price in a spiral. It went down by more than a fifth. The problem? The next platform and medium will be even more immersive an embodied internet where you're in the experience, not just looking at it. And we call this the metaverse. Meta's boss, Mark Zuckerberg, had sunk tens of billions of dollars building the metaverse, a virtual reality world that one year after launch was virtually empty. But what a difference this past year has made. Meta reported third quarter earnings of more than $34 billion, which was a whopping rise of more than 20% year on year, the biggest rise since the pandemic. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, The Economist's column on global business. Now, Mark Zuckerberg is one of those business titans who's more known for his sort of personality than he is for his business nous. For example, most of the media attention this year has been focused on his supposed cage fight with Elon Musk. And yet in the course of a year, he has actually pulled off a remarkable turnaround for the company. So tell me more about the turnaround. How did Mr. Zuckerberg pull this off? So when investors were piling the pressure on him last year, Mark Zuckerberg made two transformative business decisions in a matter of just a couple of weeks. The first was just a week or two after the third quarter results, when he announced that he was slashing his spending plans and laying off thousands of workers. And then very shortly after that, excitement over chat GPT broke out and he was forced to launch in the blink of an eye a kind of internal revolution aimed at using AI to galvanize Meta's core business. 
And those two decisions really were remarkable for their speed and to a certain extent for Mr. Zuckerberg's humility. He really was listening to the criticisms that were aimed at him. And as a result, Meta's share price had risen 250% from that NATO last year. Okay, so as regards the year of efficiency, euphemistically speaking, that seems clear. You cut your costs. But what about AI? How does that figure into this story? So Mr. Zuckerberg has looked for ways to use AI to improve engagement, i.e. the time spent by users of Facebook and Instagram on the platform. He introduced Reels, which is this kind of TikTok-like video app that has been really successful in a way in actually gluing any disaffected Facebook users back to their screens. And that uses the sort of traditional AI algorithms that work out what content you want to watch and bombard you with it. So that's the traditional AI. And then there's the whole question of generative AI. So when ChatGPT burst onto the scene, Meta could have been caught flat-footed. It had no chatbots. But it had actually already invested a lot in kind of data centers, the GPUs, those kind of chips that are used for generative AI. Then it also had lots of boffins who could do the engineering work to bring all this together. Within a few months, it had actually created Llama, which is its large language model. And then just a few months after that, a whole series of developments within the meta apps, such as Facebook and Instagram, the use of Gen AI avatars that can communicate with you and that sort of thing, as well as uh, glasses that have a Gen AI chatbot inside them and a 3D headset, all of which somewhat surprised analysts with the speed that they were all rolled out. How does generative AI help with the advertising side of things? The avatars, the chatbots, I sort of get, but the core business of Meta largely is advertising, right? How does that help? So a year ago, Meta introduced a product that it calls Advantage Plus, which is basically a way of automating ads or ad campaigns for its advertisers. So it says, you know, here is what we think the impact of your ad could be. And this is how we would suggest that you write the ad to make the most of that impact. So that was using traditional AI. With Gen AI, what it's already started to do is to offer advertisers the ability to be able, sort of on the fly, to automatically change the color of the backgrounds of some of their ads or change the wordings of their ads, which basically is aimed at saving a lot of time and hence money for advertisers. Meta was really hit by some privacy restrictions imposed by Apple. What Apple was trying to target was the way that Facebook, for example, was tracking user data across its apps and into third-party apps and selling advertisements against that. And the privacy restrictions curbed Meta's ability to do that. What they then were able to do was to use AI to create probabilities about what people were going to do with their reading habits or their social media habits and sell that to advertisers. And the remarkable thing is, is that it actually seems to perform almost as well as the sort of more deterministic tracking that they did in the past. So to a degree here, it's AI becoming madmen, admen, what have you. But uh, that must surely be fraught with many of the same problems, worries that bedevil lots of other AI applications, no? 
Yeah. I mean, there are advertisers who say that they love what Meta is doing, but there are others who are quite fearful of it. And notably, I think the fact that, you know, when Meta is handling your data and helping you write your ads, it's basically in control of the entire process. So it's something of a black box. And I think advertisers worry about the lack of transparency there. And they also worry about AIs going rogue, writing ads that abuse copyright or break the law in some way or another inadvertently or invent stuff wholesale. I think they're worried that that could have huge reputational damage for a brand and control of that brand would be somewhat out of its hands. So there are also tremendous concerns about the kind of content moderation and the use of Gen AI in creating completely fake content to engage users, which also really worries advertisers because their adverts are shown against those feeds. Coming back to Mr. Zuckerberg himself, the grand pivot he's done, it was a pivot to a degree away from the metaverse. Is that now behind us? No. He and Meta insist that he is as committed to the metaverse as ever. And in fact, they say with some credibility that AI and Gen AI is actually making it easier and perhaps accelerating the metaverse because it's able to be used, for example, by developers to create the kind of virtual worlds that Mr. Zuckerberg wants to see in the metaverse. There's a lot of concern amongst investment analysts, etc., about this metaverse thing being a complete and utter waste of money. Then again, there are some virtual reality enthusiasts out there who really like it. Look, it's been a remarkable turnaround for Meta, and there's a lot more confidence about its grasp on the future. And we may all be seeing the world through metaverse-tinted glasses before too long. Henry, thanks very much for joining us. Jason, great to be here. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Venezuela is facing a gold rush, but one it may be keen to keep in the shadows. That's because lots of that gold is extracted from illegal mines, like Las Rajas, which is in the country's southern savannah. Workers there scramble across muddy craters with little more protection than flip-flops. They blast high-pressure hoses to dislodge specks of minerals. They use mercury, a dangerous toxin, to separate metal from ore all in the hope that once completed, they'll find a glint of gold. This so-called dirty gold makes up between 70 and 90% of all the gold produced in Venezuela. But it's not just Venezuela where illegal gold mining is booming. South America is one of the world's leading regions for dirty gold. Alessandro Ford writes about Latin America for The Economist. 
On paper, the continent only supplies about a tenth of global needs, but the amount being smuggled abroad is huge and it's growing. And why is that? What's prompted the boom? Well, there's supply side reasons and demand side reasons. On demand side, central banks have massively increased their gold buying. Between 2021 and 2022, they doubled their gold purchases to the highest amount since records began in the 1950s. So this is over 1,100 tonnes. The reason for that is that gold demand typically rises during periods of instability. So for example, after the financial crash in 2008, in recent years, they've increased again because of US-China trade tensions and the turmoil in Ukraine and the Middle East. The other part of the demand is growing middle classes in China and India. So for example, in India, there's been a wave of weddings after the COVID-19 pandemic that have really buoyed the jewellery sector, which globally absorbs about half of all gold production. And what about the supply side? So on the supply side, you've got poverty induced by the pandemic in Latin America, which wiped out a decade's worth of anti-poverty efforts, which has meant that there is basically a million-man army of informal miners, people that previously were in other sectors, flocking to mines across the region, often buried deep in the jungle, and carving out precious metal however they can. Now, illegal miners can only fulfil all of this demand for gold because they've acquired some pretty powerful allies. Like who? Well, Venezuela is the major place. Autocrat Nicolas Maduro oversees most mining and exports of illegal gold through the military. International Crisis Group, a Brussels-based think tank, estimated that in 2019, senior officers in the state of Amazonas in Venezuela were paid about 20 kilos of gold a month in bribes, and that was worth around $800,000 at the time. Luis Arce, the president of Bolivia, and Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's former president, have also encouraged or turned a blind eye to informal mining. I spoke with Larissa Rodriguez, who works for an NGO in Sao Paulo, Instituto Escolias, And she said that because of these powerful actors backing the sector, it's growing fast. In 10 years, they were able to literally double the size of the activities. And that's why now they are operating on an industrial basis with the heavy machineries, with airplanes. Illegal gold mining used to just be a couple of people panning in a river, using pickaxes on land. Now the sector is running on dangerous chemicals and heavy machinery. Mining sites are opening faster. They used to take a month to open. Now most of them can open in a week. Workers used to walk their earnings out by backpack. Now those are pooled and flown out by plane. In Brazil, setting up an illegal gold mine now costs as little as about $280,000. Monthly profits average over $70,000 meaning it only takes you a few months to have already earned back your capital costs. People involved in the illegal mining, the illegal activities, they made fortune and they were able to buy the machinery. This very profitable illegal mining has knock-on effects. Such as? For one thing, it attracts organised crime. So South America's main criminal market is the cocaine one. But for several months now, there's been a glut 
in coca leaves and the prices have plummeted. That means drug gangs want to diversify quickly. In Brazil, the country's largest gang, the First Capital Command, called the PCC, has started acting like an illegal mining union. In Colombia, a similar thing has happened with their largest gang, which invaded the biggest legal gold mine a few months ago. Armed groups in that country make about two to three billion per year from illegal gold. Now, that's the same, if not more, than the country's annual legal gold exports. And Alessandro, are governments trying to do anything about this? Some of them, with varying success. In Colombia, recent data shows that fewer mines are being shut down on average than in the past, but there have been some attempts. Brazil has been better. The current president, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, deployed the army to stop mining in protected areas. In February, he expelled around 20,000 illegal miners from indigenous lands. And the government and central bank have passed important legislation to keep illegal gold from entering the supply chain. Mr. Rodriguez told me this could make a huge difference. I would say they are the basis for us to combat illegal mining because, as I told you... But more can be done. So Brazil's government, for instance, is calling for international regulation of the gold trade. Importers like the European Union already have rules against importing conflict minerals, but that's mostly been seen as applying to diamonds. And when it comes to dirty gold, they don't have the same potency. The fear in South America and among the people I've spoken to is that importers have washed their hands of this problem completely. Alessandro, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. As with most things on the Korean Peninsula, there's a bit of a rivalry between the North and the South when it comes to football. Andrew Knox is our Korea's correspondent. To put it in terms of the old commentator cliche, there's no love lost between the two teams. And when it comes to the men's game, it's usually South Korea that wins. They've been up against the North 17 times, and they won seven of those and only lost one. But women's football is a completely different story. So this tape you're hearing is from the quarterfinal of the Asia Games, which was played back in September. And the commentator is basically saying that North Korea is an incredibly difficult opponent. And it's a really high stakes game. And in the end, North Korea came out on top. The women's team has played 21 matches against the South now, and they've won 16 of them. South Korea has only won one of them. So tell me more about the North Korea women's team. So the team's nicknamed Cholima, as indeed are the men's team. And the nickname comes from this ancient horse of mythology, which could supposedly run incredibly fast. And it's also a really common trope of North Korean propaganda. The team has really earned this name. They're incredibly successful. As I said, the other month, they beat the South Koreans 4-1 at the quarterfinal of the Asia Games. And in that competition, they've won a silver medal three times and won the gold medal three times. They've got some intimidating firepower, really strong attacking side. And if the women feel like they're the ones who are really performing and the men are failing to live up to that, well, that's a gripe that they share with a lot of North Korean women. And what is that gripe? 
So that gripe is essentially that pretty much all of the productive activity that happens in the country is actually done by women. Men are assigned jobs by the state, and they have to turn up to those jobs no matter what. Often they're in, say, factories that don't have the inputs they need to run, and they essentially do very little. And that's not universally the case, but it is very often true. And when these enterprises aren't productive, the workers don't get paid. The exception to this is that married women are expected to be homemakers, and so they aren't required to have jobs and they aren't assigned them by the state. That gives them the opportunity to go out and trade in the informal markets that have sort of grown up in the last 30 years since marketization has come to North Korea as a result of the utter breakdown of the state central distribution system. Now, you might think that this sort of level of economic power, being the real breadwinner in the house, would buy North Korean women some respect. But the society, in fact, remains incredibly patriarchal. And this is reflected in their attitude to sports as well. At the Asian Games, most of North Korea's medals were won by women. But it was the only man to win a gold medal who ended up carrying the country's flag to the closing ceremony. But presumably, with all its success, the women have earned respect outside the country. I mean, sometimes they just have difficulty playing by the rules, as indeed the regime itself often does. We saw a bit of that in the Asian Games in September. They were a bit rough and tumble out on the field, as this commentator is explaining. They were also banned from the 2015 World Cup after some players tested positive for steroids back in 2011. And in keeping with the grand tradition of bizarre news out of North Korea, their explanation was pretty odd. They essentially said that several members of the team had been struck by lightning. And in order to treat this, they had given them medicine that had been made from the musk glands of deer, which in turn caused this false positive. But I mean, for the most part, they have a pretty impeccable footballing record. And if the team is a reflection of the country now, what might the future look like? There are two ways we could sort of see it going. One former player of the team provides what might be a really good role model for the country. Ri Hang-ok represented North Korea in two World Cups, and then she became a referee and actually went on to officiate two more. And in those World Cups, she worked with a team of assistant referees who are from both sides of the peninsula. It would be incredible if North Korea could follow that trail. But frankly, that doesn't seem to really be on the horizon. More likely, the intermittent rule-breaking and shows of strength will be here for time to come. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The final installment of Boss Class is out, our subscriber-only series on how to be a better manager. Its last topic is one that applies to us all, managing yourself. You can still get a free one-month subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus to have a listen to the whole series, which I promise is funnier than you're probably imagining. Head to the show notes for more on that, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.